0: The first question really is what the what is net zero? So net zero refers to net zero carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions. And um, there's this little word in here which is um, net, um, which actually, um, as we will see later, complicates things things quite a bit. So net zero means that residual emissions of greenhouse gases are balanced by anthropogenic greenhouse gas removals. I don't know.
1: That is Kirsten Ziegfeld. She's a distinguished professor of climate science at Simon Fraser University in the Department of Geography and she helped me better understand the simplicities and the complexities of net zero carbon. She explained the science of net zero during another webinar in the University of Toronto Centres for Climate Science and Engineering Lecture Series. Professor Ziegfeld's research focuses on The effects of anthropogenic emissions of greenhouse gases and aerosols on climate and multi-centennial timescales. The goal of her address was to better understand the responses of the climate system to forcing and the interactions between climate system components, the atmosphere, ocean, land service, biosphere and cryosphere, in order to improve predictions for the future. The science of climate change can be technical and confusing but Professor Ziegfeld was able to present it in a fashion which laypeople such as myself could grasp. This session was recorded and will appear soon on the University of Toronto website, and you'll find a link to that website in the show notes. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean, and I'm coming to you from Shepparton in Victoria, Australia, from the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I've been involved with the practical side of the climate conversation since the early 2000s. That's attending lectures and reading whatever I could find. And although the public interest has broadened as the years have passed, it became apparent to me a few years ago that much more needed to be said, and it was important, terribly important that we were making much more noise. Unsure of what to do to reach more people, I decided to try my hand, or should I say more correctly, my voice, at podcasting. And what you're listening to now is the result of those efforts. There appeared to be a great silence about the climate crisis, and this podcast is an effort by me to increase the volume of my voice and so help end that silence. Fortunately, it was not as silent as I had thought, as many other podcasts were beavering away and were attempting to alert the world to the climate crisis. And several months ago, I was found, so to speak, i Mark Spencer from the Climactic Collective. Music for this podcast comes courtesy of Music for a Warming World, a Melbourne-based group, and you'll find a link to that group in the episode notes. I trust you'll enjoy this episode, and if you do, please feel free to share it with your friends.
0: So, as uh, Danielle already said, I am going to talk about the science of net zero. So, I will talk about the, the scientific foundations of uh, this net zero con uh, net zero concept, and will also offer some reflections about its um, utilities, but also about some some of the risks that. Uh, this, this concept entails. So, um, the first question really is, what, the, what what is net zero? So, net zero refers to net zero carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions. And um, there's this little word in here, which is um, net, um, which actually, um, as we will see later, complicates things, things quite a bit. So, net zero means that residual emissions of greenhouse gases are balanced by anthropogenic greenhouse gas removals. And uh, this uh, concept of net zero has gained traction in the the wake of the Paris Agreement, which called on nations to limit warming to well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts to limit warming to one and a half degrees. And um, in the um, report, that was published in 2018 by the uh, UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It was clarified that limiting warming to one and a half degrees requires reduction in carbon dioxide emissions by about half that by 2030 and reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. And uh, Since then, many entities, so these include um, countries, these include institutions and uh, companies, have set target in terms of net zero emissions. And um, currently, about 88% of um, carbon dioxide emissions are covered by net zero targets. What I'm um, going to do here, I will first talk about um, carbon in the climate system and um understand um, its role in setting uh, concentrations of carbon dioxide and and temperature. And then I'll talk briefly about the physical climate response to um, show why it is actually necessary to limit or to reach net zero carbon dioxide emissions in order to limit warming to a specific level. So you've probably seen this um, curve here many times. So this is the famous Keeling curve, which shows the change in the atmospheric CO2 concentration as a function of time. So when they started measuring in 1958, carbon dioxide levels were below 320. And now we're actually here um, um, scratching the 420 ppm level. So in fact, and um, average over the month of February, global carbon dioxide concentrations were at 419 parts per million. And um, it is um, well known that this uh, uh, increase in concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is driven by anthropogenic emissions. So these include carbon emissions from fossil fuel burning, but also carbon emissions from land use change due to activities such as deforestation. And um, yeah, here in the um, in this uh, in the fossil fuel emission curve. So this this slight dip here in 2020 this is due to the COVID pandemic. But as uh, um, analysis have shown, the um, the emission level um, in um, Um, in 2021 has actually rebounded to the 2019 level. So, how does the carbon cycle respond as we, and the climate system respond as we put carbon emissions into the atmosphere? So, this slide here shows the main stores of, um, of carbon dioxide. These are mainly the ocean. Followed by the land and um, and the atmosphere, and these stores here are given in billion metric tons of carbon dioxide, and um, naturally these carbon stores exchange large amounts of carbon. Which are indicated by these um, uh, orange arrows here. So the atmosphere and the land they exchange around 500 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide per year. In the ocean, close to 300. So fossil fuel emissions fra- and and land use emissions um, in um, or over- averaged over the period between 2011 and 2020, we in the order of 40 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide per year. And um, about half of those remained in the atmosphere. And the other half was taken up by sinks on land and in the ocean. So currently, or over the past decade, about 50% of the emissions that we release into the atmosphere have been taken up by these uh, natural land and ocean sinks. However, something to take into account is that the efficiency of these sinks is expected to decrease with further carbon emissions and further warming. And this is illustrated here with um, with a figure that is taken from the most recent um, IPCC Working Group 1 report. So here, these boxes at the top, they show emissions of um, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So again, given in billion, billion metric tons of CO2. And then these colored boxes, this is the amount of those emissions that are taken up by the ocean and the land. And as you can see, the amount increases with the amount of emissions. So here, these, um, these are different types. Um, um, scenarios, so different possible future evolutions of um, of our socioeconomic system ranging from um, scenarios with very ambitious climate mitigation. To, um, to business as usual scenarios. So the amount of emissions put into the atmosphere increases from left to the right. And um, as um, is evident from this figure, as uh, the amount of emission increases, also the amount taken up by the ocean and the land increases. However, the fraction or the percentage of emission that is taken up decreases with the amount of emissions. So the numbers decrease as you go from left to right. So within these, um, these donut chart here. So this means that as, we put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and as the climate warms, the efficiency of these things decreases. And here in this a relatively high emission scenario, the amount that would be taken up by the ocean and the land now um, is reduced to, to 38% from, um, from the current number of 50%. And this is due largely to what we call... Um, climate carbon cycle feedbacks, so effects of climate change on these natural sinks, which then reduces the ability of these sinks to take up carbon. So due to these, um, to do, due to these um, feedbacks and um, to to processes within the carbon cycle, the carbon that we release into the atmosphere pretty much from a human perspective, stays there forever. And um, this is illustrated in this figure here. So on the vertical axis, this is the percentage of carbon dioxide emissions that remain in the atmosphere as a function of time. And here, um, the the first part of this this, uh, um, figure here, this is zoomed into 500 years, but then the time axis extends 10,000 years into the future. And then these different colors, these are um, lines that correspond to different amounts of carbon emissions put into the atmosphere. And here the unit is petagrams, which is the standard unit used in carbon cycle science. But luckily, this corresponds to um, billion metric tons of, of carbon in this case, not carbon dioxide. But the main point here is, so these these lines here at the top, these are lines with with, uh, larger emissions, and then the amount of emissions put into the atmosphere decreases as we move uh, down. And uh, the main point here is that um, after 500 years, 30 to 70% of the atmospheric carbon dioxide emissions is still in the atmosphere. So a very large fraction still is in the atmosphere five, many hundred years after they were released. And if we emit a lot, then actually um, um, a large percentage remains in the atmosphere. So this is a very important finding to understand the relationship between carbon emissions and temperature. So carbon dioxide, once in the atmosphere, is very difficult to, um, to get out. So now let's talk about the, um, the the physical climate system response to, to carbon dioxide um, removal. So this here is, is a cartoon of the greenhouse effect, which I assume um, you are all familiar with, with. What I would like to point out here is that um, the... Uh, the enhanced greenhouse effect or the greenhouse effect that is enhanced by human emissions of greenhouse gases creates an energy balance at the top of the atmosphere. Energy imbalance means that more energy remains within the system than actually leaves the system. And um, the earth restores energy balance by warming. And the reason is that as Um, the the surface or the temperature of of the earth warms, more radiation is emitted to space. And um, if, let's say, there were no ocean in the climate system, then this this energy balance would be restored quite quickly. However, we do have um, um, inertia in the climate system, which is uh, largely related to the ocean, which slows... And delays warming, first due to um, the, the high specific heat of, of seawater, and then secondly, due to the ability of the ocean to mix heat into deeper layers of the ocean. So, if we apply an energy imbalance at the top of the atmosphere, then it takes the ocean a long time to adjust. To that energy imbalance and this is what we call ocean thermal inertia and to illustrate this um, I pulled a figure here from um, from a paper by Matthew Sedal from 2008 which shows the change in ocean temperature over a time frame of 500 years and um, so this so if we look at this um, solid blue line here um, so this is for carbon emissions that stop in 2100. Okay, so in 2100, even though we stop releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, you see that the ocean still continues to warm and will do so for several hundred years, even after 2500. So the ocean, it takes the ocean several hundred years to adjust to this energy imbalance, which introduces inertia into into the system. And um, so, these, um, so the l- longevity of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and um, there's this ocean thermal inertia, they're really um, at the core of what we need to understand why stabilizing temperature requires reaching zero carbon dioxide emissions. And I'll illustrate this, this again here. So, um, so there, there are many papers that have shown this. Um, I took the ones that I show here are from a paper of, um, Gillette et al. 2011. Um, so these here to the left, these are cumulative emissions. So cumulative means that they're added up year by year. Okay, so it is, um, perhaps we could also say total emissions, so the total amount of emissions that is um, released up to a given year. And uh, when these uh, lines plateau, it means that emissions are zero. So in this um, green case here, emissions um, increase according to, to to, to the historical, to the observed emissions and then are held constant. They are sh- shortly after the year 2000, whereas in this red case here, um, carbon dioxide emissions continue to increase according to business as usual trajectory until the year 2100, and then they are set to zero. Okay, so in this green line, emissions are set to zero or are stopped around the year 2000 and in this red case, um, around the year 2100. So then let's look at The concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So even though we stop emissions, so if we look at this red curve here, the concentration in the atmosphere Remains high for a very long time. So here the time scale is a thousand years. So there's a, a somewhat rapid decline at the beginning, which is due mostly to carbon uptake by, by the terrestrial biosphere. But then the uptake slows, slows down. And by the year 3000, still again, close to to sixty to seventy percent of the carbon dioxide emitted into the atmosphere is still in the atmosphere. So here at the bottom, this shows the um, um, the, the ocean warming. So here the label says, Thermosteric sea level anomaly. What this means is the expansion of the ocean due to warming, but this is um, basically an indicator for um, for the warming of the ocean. So what we see is um, again for this red trajectory. So even though we stop emitting in 2100, the um, the the ocean continues to warm for for um, 900 and probably 900 years and probably even longer. And um, so these two responses here, so the declining carbon dioxide concentration and then this ocean thermal inertia, they balance out. And the idea here is that um, some of the same ocean processes are associated with, with carbon and, and, and ocean heat uptake. And what they give is an approximately stable surface air temperature. Okay, and again, the reason is that this decline in the atmospheric CO two concentration following uh, zeroing carbon dioxide emissions is compensated by this continuing warming due um, due to ocean thermal inertia, and so the two these two effects more or less compensate and give us a stable temperature. So the um, the corollary here then is that in order to to um, limit warming or to halt warming, we need to reach zero carbon dioxide emissions.
1: This is Climate Conversations, and we're listening to Professor Kirsten Ziegfeld talk about the science of net zero.
0: So this is um, so this is, um, I would say, um, the, the the first key point. So now. Research over the past decade has shown that uh, global warming is proportional to cumulative carbon dioxide emissions. And this is illustrated very nicely in this figure here, which is um, also taken from the latest IPCC Working Group 1 report. And um, so here on, on the vertical axis, this is global surface temperature relative to pre-industrial sorry, global surface temperature change relative to pre-industrial as a function of cumulative, or again, total carbon dioxide emissions, again, given here in units of billion metric tons CO2. And we see that both historically, which is this um, wiggly black line here, but also in, in future scenarios, this relationship between warming and the total amount of emissions is linear. What this means is that a given level of carbon dioxide emissions that we put into the atmosphere has a well-defined amount of warming. And the, the slope of this line is somewhat uncertain because it is related, and this is indicated also by these um, by these um, by these um, envelopes here because of uncertainties and climate sensitivity, which is how much the climate system warms in response to CO2, but also uncertainty in carbon cycle processes. Okay. So warming is proportional to cumulative carbon dioxide emissions. And um, what this also means that, so again, if we turn this around, if we want to limit warming to a specific level, so let's say one and a half degrees, then there's a a, a well-defined amount of carbon dioxide that we need to limit our emission to. And this finite amount of carbon dioxide, this is what is called a carbon budget. So again, a, a carbon budget is... A finite, so this is very important, finite here really means over all times. So, it's something that doesn't renew. So, a finite amount of carbon dioxide that can be released into the atmosphere while keeping global warming below a given limit. And um, to illustrate this, I pulled this uh, visualization from the Global Carbon Project. And here, the idea is to to illustrate the budget as as a bucket and um, as emissions are released into the atmosphere, the bucket gradually warms until it fills. So, what the filling of the bucket is a metaphor here for the carbon budget being exhausted. So, this year, this is a function of, of time. So, we're now in the early, early 1900s. And it also distinguishes between, between different regions of, of the world. And uh, the simulation here goes to the year, year, year 2019. So this is now um, almost three years ago. And at that point in time, only 9% of the carbon budget that is consistent with, consistent with limiting warming to one and a half degrees was, uh, was left. So. Just to give you an idea of how large this, this budget is, so these numbers are, again, from the latest IPCC Working Group 1 report, and they they gave these um, remaining carbon budgets. So, remaining means as um as of a specific date. And here the, the, the date is taken to be um the beginning of the year 2020. And the numbers that I'm showing here, they are consistent with limiting warming to one and a half degrees. But the report also gives you numbers for um for um yeah one and a half, 1.7 and and two degrees and I think even even higher. So I did mention the uncertainty that is related to uncertainty and climate sensitivity and carbon cycle processes, and for this reason, carbon budgets come with a likelihood. So they come with um, with uh, with with the chance or with the likelihood of actually staying within the given temperature limit. So if uh, if we as a society are comfortable with the 50-50 chance of staying within one and a half degrees, then the, uh, gr- the remaining carbon budget is 500 billion metric tons of CO2. And uh, to put this into context, um, remember we said earlier that we're currently emitting 40 Billion metric tons of CO2 per year into the atmosphere. And um, so this would be at, at current emission rates, this would be 12 years. If on the other hand, we want a bit more certainty of limiting warming to one and a half degrees then we could go with uh, with the two and a three chance, and then the carbon budget would be reduced to five. Uh, sorry, to four hundred billion metric tons of CO two, which is equivalent to about ten years of current emissions. But I should also point out this is from the start of 2020, and we've continued to emit about these um, these. Um, uh, amount of emissions. If we're interested in uh, the remaining carbon budget as of the beginning of 2022, then we would have to subtract around 80 gigatons, leaving us with 10 years for the one and a half chance, and about eight years for the um, two two and a three chance. So, to um, so the, the the key points that. Um, I wanted to make so far is that warming that is induced by carbon dioxide halts when CO2 emissions reach net zero. And this is really a, a geophysical constraint. And that the level of warming that we achieve or that we reach by the time net zero CO2 emissions are reached, will be determined by the total amount of net CO2 emissions emitted up to that point. So now let's um, unpack this, um, this idea of net zero a little bit more. So, um, according to the to the definition of the IPCC, net zero CO two emissions is defined as a condition in which anthropogenic carbon dioxide emissions are balanced by anthropogenic carbon dioxide removals. And um, here, anthropogenic means that these removals are deliberate, so they are different. From these natural removals of the land and the oceans that I talked about earlier. So, these would be referred to as as natural removals. So, anthropogenic removals are deliberate CO2 removals um, through human activities, and I'll show a few examples of those in a a moment. So, in this definition here, um, there's an implicit assumption, which is that um, achieving balance assumes that the climate effect of a CO2 emission is equal and opposite to the climate effect of a CO2 removal. Right again, in the context of the Paris Agreement, we're talking about net zero with the goal of limiting warming to a specific level. So what we're assuming by uh, allowing to trade between emissions and removals is that let's say one unit CO two emission has an equal and opposite effect to one unit CO two removal. However, as a, as I will argue in um, in a moment, this is not not necessarily the case. So first of all, what are some um, some some potential carbon dioxide removal methods and um, um, they are, I would say, um, yeah, usually they are um, categorized in, in different categories, so depending on either the sequestration or, or the storage mechanism. Um, here, I um, refer to them as, as perhaps more, more technological and engineered methods, and one of them is direct air capture of carbon dioxide from, from the atmosphere. Um, which, which, um, yeah, probably many of you at, at the center are already familiar with. So here, the idea is that um, air is sucked in to these uh, to these devices, and then there's the, the chemical process that strips the carbon dioxide out of the ambient air, and this carbon dioxide is then um, either um, disposed underground or made into into products that can be used for different purposes. And um, so, here the idea is we're taking um, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and then through capture infrastructure, we um, we place the carbon into the the geologic reservoir. So, then another category of of these carbon dioxide removal methods includes what are referred to as nature based climate solutions. So, these are solutions that use ecosystems, both on land and in the ocean, which naturally sequester and store carbon to actually sequester and store even more carbon than they would naturally. And um, I think the most um, yeah pr- prominent of these uh, nature-based climate solutions is um, is reforestation. So planting trees in areas where um, that were previously deforested, or afforestation, which means planting trees in area where there previously was no forest. And um, here the idea is that uh, through processes of uh, photosynthesis. Carbon dioxide is taken out of the atmosphere and then stored in um, in carbon stores on land. Or if we talk about um, marine um, ecosystems, such as um, coastal ecosystems, for example, then in the coastal ocean. And um, yeah, so... If we, um, if we think especially about these land-based methods, right, on one hand, they sequester carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but then as is illustrated in this figure here, they also affect the land surface. So if we plant trees in an area that had grasses or maybe agricultural crops um, beforehand, then planting trees changes the turbulence at the, at the land surface, which then has an effect on, um, on um, latent and sensible heat fluxes, so the exchange of heat between the surface and the atmosphere. Also, often trees are darker than, um, than grasses or agricultural surfaces, so they reflect less incoming solar radiation, and this is a property that we call albedo. So the albedo of forested areas is, is, is usually reduced compared to, um, to a, a non-forested area. And um, all this is to say that in addition to the effect of, um, of these removal methods on carbon dioxide, these methods often have other effects on the earth system, right? Through their modification of the surface energy balance, for example, as is in the case here of uh, afforestation and reforestation. And um, so this is why assuming that the climate effects of emissions and removals is actually equivalent is not necessarily justified. So here I already mentioned these, bi- so we call them biophysical effects. So this is our, our, our um, effects of vegetation on um, on, on fluxes of, um, of, of heat, for example, but also water vapor and on, on radiation. And one, one example of a biophysical effect is the change in albedo, but also changes in, in evapotranspiration, for example. And especially in the case of, um, of forests, And even more so, if we plant forests and regions of seasonal snow cover, then actually these effects can have a net warming effect that counters the effect of carbon dioxide removal. And in effect, so this is very relevant for Canada, in in high-latitude regions, the albedo effect actually dominates. So from a climate perspective, it is is actually... um, it it, it results in in net warming if you do plant trees for carbon sequestration. Also, some uh, some other carbon dioxide removal methods that can result in release of other greenhouse gases. So, for example, peatland restoration um, can result in release of methane, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas. And some other methods that um, have to do with 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 storing carbon in soils through changes in agricultural practices, for example, they may release um, nitrous oxide, which is also a greenhouse gas. So, while these these, um, efforts may be successful at removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, again, they may have unintended consequences, climate consequences, in the form of release of other greenhouse gases. Also, carbon stored by CDR, and this is true for many land-based carbon dioxide removal methods, the carbon that is stored can be vulnerable to natural disturbances, so things like wildfires or insect outbreaks. And um and also to human disturbances. So let's say if we decide to plant a forest in a given area, there's no guarantee that actually that forest may remain there forever because there may uh, may be land use change decisions that are made that um that interfere with um with that carbon storage. And um and then finally, so this is um something uh we, we, we published last last summer. The um, the carbon cycle and climate response to carbon dioxide emissions and removals is asymmetric. So what this means is that so ne- not taking so not taking any of these um, earlier effects into account, um, just because of non-linear effects in the carbon cycle, uh, an emission of carbon dioxide release into the atmosphere is more. Is more effective at raising atmospheric CO two than uh, removal of CO two is at lowering it. So this means that there's um, that there's an asymmetry in the in in emissions in the effect of emissions and removals on. Um, on the atmospheric CO two concentration, and so if you're offsetting an emission with the removal, you may actually end up with the higher CO two concentration level than if you were to avoid that emission in the first place. Okay, so these are all um, all reasons, and um, and um, these uh, so there is. Um, on, on the biophysical effect of afforestation, there's a quite a bit of, of research out there. But many of these effects here are um, are only starting to be understood. I think we know quite a bit for um, about about forests, but many of these other or, or the climate effects of of many of many other CDR methods, and also the the the, the more um, general biogeochemical effect of this method is, um, is still poorly quantified. So um, I wanted to show an example here of, um, for example, what, um, how offsetting a carbon dioxide emission with, with a, a non-permanent carbon dioxide removal can actually result in, in additional warming. And um, so, so here on, on the left-hand side, these are, these are atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration. And the blue line, um, oops, I just realized that these arrows have shifted here. So um, disregard those, please. So the, the blue line here, which, is, which lies under the, the yellow one, so this is our baseline. So this is a relatively ambitious um, emission mitigation scenario. So, in, uh, in, in this IPCC family group, uh, scenario family group, it's the SSP1 1.9, which is more or less consistent, with limiting warming to one and a half degrees. So, now, if in addition to these um, aggressive mitigation, we also deploy, um, let's say, a land-based CDR method that sequesters CO2, but then is… Um, is affected by some kind of disturbance. So, for example, think of a forest that is planted and then is, is burnt down. Then this would be this, this this red trajectory called temporary removal. And so, what it does it um, in in this phase of carbon storage, it shaves the peak off of the CO two concentration and um, off of of temperature, but then returns to the um, to to the to the baseline scenario. So. Temporary carbon storage can actually have a benefit if it is additional, right? So in this case, we are deploying the CDR in addition to ambitious emission reductions. However, if we use it as an offset, as is the case in this yellow line here, so now the assumption is we use CDR to offset fossil fuel emissions. So it could be from, uh, um, yeah, could be from uh, from from natural gas or from oil and so because we we use it as an offset during the time that the CO2 is sequestered we, the the trajectory is the same as for our reference scenario because we use we use that to offset additional emissions and then and then um, shortly after 2050, when the carbon dioxide is, re- is released back into the atmosphere, so again this could be due to forest fire. Then you see that now this uh, this this yellow line, in terms of carbon dioxide concentration, but also in terms of temperature, lies above the, the baseline. So what what this indicates that if we use this this um, carbon storage that turned out to be temporary to offset fossil fuel emissions, then in the long term we do actually end up with with more warming. Yeah, I'm at the end of my presentation and also of my time, so let me um, briefly summarize and and conclude here. So reaching net zero carbon dioxide emissions is a geophysical requirement for halting warming. And uh, the, the level of warming that we will reach at the time net zero CO2 emissions are reached will be determined by the total amount of carbon dioxide emissions emitted into the atmosphere up to that point. So then what, um, what um, I, I showed here is that uh, the climate effects of carbon dioxide emissions and removals are not always equal and opposite to each other. So in a sense, they're not not equivalent because of these many many um, these several effects that I, I I just mentioned. And because of that, if um, sort of we're, we're pursuing net zero by balancing CO2 emissions with CO2 removal, we could actually end up with more warming than we would if we were to avoid those CO2 emissions in in the first place. And um, so, I think this has, uh, this has many implications, but, but I would say the, the um, sort of a high-level implication is that policy frameworks that um, regulate more generally um, these, these uh, net zero CO2 emissions, and more specifically, things like carbon offset protocols, they need to take this this non-equivalence of CO2 emissions and removal into account because otherwise net zero may result in additional warming. So I will um, stop here.
1: Just as soon as I can find a recording to this session, I'll add it to the show notes. Climate Conversations is published with the support of the Mark Spencer published Climactic Collective. And it's just one of more than 20 podcasts making up that collective. More about the collective and the associated podcasts can be found at climactic.fm. Music for Climate Conversations is from the Melbourne based group Music for a Warming World. You can find a link to that group in the episode notes. Responsibility for Climate Conversations rests with me. But you could help with the questions. And if there is something specific that needs addressing, but the question is not being asked of whom it should be asked, please make a suggestion and send it to r.mclean7 at icloud.com. Earlier episodes of Climate Conversations can be found at the Climactic website. Simply search for climactic.fm. Go to the Climate Conversations artwork Click on that, and there you will find all the other episodes. Beyond that, in all this climate chaos, remember just a few things. Put your faith in genuine climate science. Also, action is the best antidote to despair. And that, I must add, is one of the drivers of this podcast. And remember, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. That ends this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company, and until we talk again, please take care.